Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And everyone, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. The first live program for the year, 2018. Yesterday was a big day, of course, Invasion Day, Survival Day, big Big rally in Melbourne. Thousands and thousands of people were on the streets supporting the uh, hashtag Abolish Australia Day. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, the mainstream media only slightly reported the level of enthusiasm for this event, which is uh, interesting in itself. And it uh, tells you why it was so important that uh, 3CR, your community radio station, gave a live cross to the event. Uh, Today, we're going to hear from Humphrey McQueen later in the program. Uh, about his take on uh, Australia Day, which gives a much more historical background to the whole issue. Uh, Very interesting uh, affair. Humphrey's always very interesting. We're going to uh, catch up with uh, Vince Emmanuel from America. We've been hearing lots and lots of stuff about uh, is Trump competent? Uh, A whole range of diversionary uh, theatrics coming from the top part of American politic, but uh, Vince in uh, Michigan City in uh, Indiana gives us a perspective on the ground, which is uh, thoroughly fascinating, and uh, more local news uh, in the second half hour. We're going to find out about uh, the Setting Sun Film Festival that's coming up. It's uh, part of the cultural experience that is the west of Melbourne. And we're also going to go down the coast to talk about uh, defending our public spaces, our beaches. We're going to talk to Chris Smith from the Belfast Coastal Reserve Action Committee uh, group who uh, have uh, are in the midst of a a battle to save uh, the use, public use of uh, the beaches between Port Ferry and Warrnambool, where uh, the uh, commercial industry of racehorsing is uh, set to be allowed to take up to 200 horses to practice uh, along the foreshores there with... Uh, It's argued uh, detrimental effects not only on public usage but also on the environment. But before we do move on, let's hear a few things about what's happening around our local area. 
Do you know an exceptional woman or group of women in the city of Yarra? Nominations are now open for Yarra City Council's 2018 Inspirational Women of Yarra Award. We are looking for women who make a contribution either through paid or unpaid work, volunteering or simply by being inspirational in the way they live their lives. All those who identify as women are eligible to be nominated. Nominations are due by Monday the 19th of February. For more information and to nominate, go to yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash women. Yes, March the 8th is the uh, International Women's Day and uh, 3CR, your community radio station, is, uh, as usual, devoting its programming to uh, women's voices. So uh, tune in on March the 8th and uh, hear the pleasure of your normal programming, but devoted towards women. So uh, uh, this is our annual event uh, and it's uh, always inspirational to uh, investigate uh, things in a more forensic way uh, and, and our different programs will be doing that. And as I said on uh, the first live program back after the summer break, we're going to go and have a yarn with uh, Vince Emanuel. Vince Emanuel is a, a American activist who is basically in the belly of the beast. Let's hear from Vince. Yeah, well, that's right. You have had one hell of a winter. Yeah, it's been about uh, Celsius. It's been below zero, anywhere from below zero to negative 20 degrees for like the last two months. It just got warm over this last week. And uh, now it got cold again. It's like back down to negative two, negative three degrees. But there's been this like ice rain and it knocked down a bunch of power lines and there's been a bunch of crap locally. So we've just been dealing with that because we live right on lake michigan so we just get some really wicked winds and we get this what they call lake effect snow so it's like these bands of snow that just appear over the lake and they'll just kind of hover there for many hours so we've already had over a hundred inches of snow in the last month and a half this is almost so, this is incomprehensible to people like us i'll have to say uh, it, does yeah. it does it just affect uh, your side of america or does it stop everything in i mean what does it mean such a weather events it's it's uh it's it does stop some things yeah it's interesting i mean there's the it depends where you're at some places deal with it better than others i'd say our place deals with it decently you know we're pretty used to it so people you know trucks are ready and they have to plow the snow and they close down schools sometimes for several days and Everything just kind of slows down. It's kind of understood that, you know, you can't really do much when there's 24 inches of snow on the ground. I was noticing that, uh, I mean, one post said, you know, while people have been diverted by discussions about Trump, actually five really important things have gone through legislation uh, without anybody blinking an eye. And one of them was the uh, thing about uh removing the ban on offshore drilling in Florida, for example. Right, right. Yeah, well, I think this is one of the aspects of the Trump regime is that there's so much chaos going on that there's all kinds of things that fly under the radar because there's insane things that are said publicly. So there's these, you know, there's 
it, there's so much chaos on a day-to-day basis that I think one of the things I've noticed is that progressive left-wing groups have had a hard time, I think, trying to focus on what matters. And then depending on where you live and what situation you're in, you know, sometimes offshore drilling isn't the most important issue. But I would argue that it's a more important issue than, say, whatever Trump tweets. But again, this is what the mainstream media has been focusing on. So I think most of the mainstream media and the corporate media, if you turn it on night in and night out, it's like one long reality TV show. And it's like a long, you know, it's a, it's a drama that plays out every night on cable news. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's tiresome, but I guess it's getting decent ratings or else they would do something else. And I think it's just because of how outrageous this guy is. And, uh, I think, you know, there's some people have argued that it's a strategy and all this. I don't, I think, uh, you know, as time goes on and the more and more I read about what's happening, not just with this administration, but with most administrations, I mean, I think, I think what's hard for people on the left to understand is that it's not a well-oiled machine and that it's not this like grand conspiracy that Trump and them are just trying to distract everyone. It's that they actually don't, they're, they, these people are actually that crazy and as a result, we have to decide, I think, as people, you know, I think we have to have some discipline, you know, and, and decide, OK, wait a minute. Are we going to start following everything? This, this guy's been saying crazy stuff since far before he was the president. So it's like, you know, do we want to follow that all the time or are we going to start focusing on legislation? But then, you know, it's not just, say, him and the kinds of legislation that are going through Congress, but it's also at the state level, at the county and the municipal level. And, uh, you know, so it's a it's sort of a nonstop assault. And this is kind of what happens whenever the Republicans get in power is we usually have this period where they try and ram home as much as they could possibly get rammed home, knowing that they probably will get elected out of office the next time around. So, it, you know, the last couple of times this has happened, it's very reminiscent of like the Bush era in 2000 to 2006. And it reminds me a little bit of the Tea Party in 2010. You know, but this is this is a little different. I mean, there's, as you know, the Democratic Party at the national level, for the most part, has been very useless in terms of providing any kind of a real uh, resistance to Trump's agenda. So it's 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 uh, it's definitely difficult times over here. But there's uh, I think there are efforts that I've seen at the local level with people who are doing some really interesting things. But and there's even some interesting national campaigns. But overall, it's really it's been a rough time here in terms of organizing. What's the effect of this um, closing down of the government? So if they, you know, payments to workers, etc., unless certain bills about immigrants are changed. What, tell me about what's how does that play in around your group of people? What, what's going on there? It's on it. <laughs> See, this is a great example, uh, to be honest with you, Annie. This is one of those issues that I honestly haven't paid too much attention to. Because oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. There's, you know, so many issues that are going on here that it's like, you know, another government shutdown. This has gone on for a while under Obama. You know, the Republicans would hold up different yeah. pieces of legislation and say, look, we're not going to pass a funding bill. And then they try and bring government workers into it. Eventually, of course, the government workers get paid and maybe it's a week or something without the pay. And there's all kinds of provisions and extra money that, that are, that's available. So it's really, to me, it's more political drama than anything else. Yep. You know, I would say, 
you know, much much like you were just talking about with the other issues, I would say some of this government shutdown stuff is also po more political drama. Whereas, you know, instead of talking about a comprehensive immigration plan and instead of talking about doing the things we need to do, you know, we're, we're talking about this government shutdown, which has shifted the entire conversation to the right, because now it's, oh, my God, you know, the government's going to be shut down. And then, you know, the Democrats are willing to cave in terms of whether or not they're going to allow legislation that wouldn't protect immigrants here, different portions of immigrants. And, you know, it's really, it's a, it's a disaster. And the Democrats uh, caved in to Trump and them. And I don't know any Hispanic or Latino activists that are very happy with what just took place. So I kind of just gauge from them. And, you know, I like, I mean, I feel like it's a uh, blitzkrieg of reactionary policies at virtually every level of government. And, you know, the Republicans control the House, the Senate and the White House and the conservatives rule in the Supreme Court. So it's a, you know, it's so, <laughs> so, I, so what I sit back and think about it. So, so what you're saying really is that the the stuff that people are doing on a local level becomes supremely important. I think so. I mean, yeah. I think that we have to start building power where we live and then draw that out to larger efforts. Yeah, so what's going on around where you are? I mean, given the fact that you've been snowed in, maybe that's not necessarily completely obvious, but maybe you've got something to say about what's going on at that level. Yeah, it's not, it's not a bad thing all the time. Um, some people, I think, you know, they say cold weather and, it, you know, sometimes it forces you to sit back and think about things. And I think that that's important. Um, and I think that there's something to be said for, you know, maybe being snowed in and being forced to sit around and read books for three or four months out of the year. <laughs> if, if that's indeed what you choose to do. But, you know, at the local level, we've decided where I live here in Michigan City to start an independent left-wing organization that would be capable of doing a few things. So one would be providing immediate services to people. This could be soup kitchens. This could be helping the homeless population. We have a great relationship with the local community center that helps uh, people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and also uh, people who are homeless. And that's the kind of constituency we're focusing on. You know, we feel that a lot of the left-wing activism in the United States is focused on sort of middle-class white people. And those have been the people who have filled a lot of the movements that I've been around, including, you know, a lot of the anti-war movement and the environmental movement in the U.S., though that's changing as time goes on. But, you know, we live in a city that's one-third black. You know, if you use real statistics, we're talking 40, 50, 60 percent of the city that lives in poverty disproportionate number of people who are homeless, disproportionate number of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, disproportionate number of people who are unemployed, uh, you know, disproportionate violence in the city. You know, we've had many fatal shootings over the last year. And so you're dealing with a deindustrialized area that has been really neglected by left-wing movements. And I think we saw the result of that with Trump's election and winning places like Michigan and the state of Wisconsin and almost winning Minnesota and states like Ohio and 
you know, just yeah. destroying in states like Indiana. And then I think this is really symbolic of the progressive left really leaving behind people in places like Michigan City, where I live, in, in the heart of what we call the Rust Belt here in the United States, used to be an area that was filled with manufacturing plants and steel mills and all the rest. And we, of course, call it a Rust Belt now because those mills and all those buildings are now rusty skeletons of what they used to be. So there's, you know, tens of thousands of people who have, well, millions of people across this entire area, but in just our region, you know, tens of thousands of people who have lost those jobs to automation and to bad trade deals and all the rest. So, you know, organizing here is a particular challenge because there isn't a culture of organizing. The unions are really useless in this area, which is a shame because there is still a high union density compared to the nationwide average. But most of the unions that exist here, just they, they can't organize for shit. And if they do organize, it's in a very reactionary way. So that's been a challenge. The Democratic Party here is really a skeleton. So, it, so it, when, when you say a reactionary way, that you mean they react to a particular issue rather than saying that there's a class-based issue at hand? Yeah, that would be one way I would describe it. I mean, I think there's just a general reactionary politic to a lot of the union folks in this area, many of whom are white, working class, middle class people. And that can that can go everywhere from, you know, racism to xenophobia uh, yeah. to sexism to all the rest. So, you know, you get a lot of union people here who vote against their own interests. And so I'm no fan of the Democratic Party. But in a state like Indiana, you know, when we pass anti-union legislation at the state level, there's never a Democrat that votes for it. It's just the Republicans have so many people in power at this, in a state like Indiana or Kentucky or Mississippi or some areas in the South and areas in the Midwest and across the Great Plains that, you know, I honestly hear it's like the Democratic Party doesn't fight very hard. They don't stand for much. They're kind of a useless bunch. But they're not really an odious bunch or a nefarious bunch, at least here in the state of Indiana. They're just kind of useless. They, they, they don't do anything to organize. They don't provide any serious platform. So what you're saying uh, is that they play to the status quo. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't even know if they... I, if they even know what the status quo is. They barely even do that. I don't think they even consciously do it. I just think they're very unsophisticated. And so, you know, like for us, when we have Republicans in power in a state like Indiana, they just, they'll pass all kinds of crazy legislation because they control two-thirds of the state house and two-thirds of the state senate and all the rest. So anyway, all that aside, the the... The real thing for us here is, you know, we look around and we say, okay, the unions aren't organizing. The Democratic Party is a party that we don't really want to be a part of, um, though there are some good Democrats sometimes who will run. And of course, okay, yeah, we'll support them in limited circumstances. But we wanted to create something independent, you know, independent of unions, independent of the large nonprofit organizations. And so we developed an independent organization here in Michigan City, and we've had some limited successes so far. You know, we were able to stop a huge development project that was going to take place on one of the last remaining untouched sand dunes. So for oh the, those goodness. who don't know listening, in where we live, the bottom of Lake Michigan, yeah. we live in one of the most diverse ecosystems on the entire planet. And a lot of that has to do with the Great Lakes 
And it also has to do with what was created by the Great Lakes and the glaciers and all of the rest. But we have these amazing sand dunes here, you know, some of them two, three hundred foot tall. Um, just amazing, amazing things. And all kinds of plant and And what wildlife. they wanted to build hotels they on it. An, they wanted to build an amusement park on it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Had so no shame, we did they? We were, we were able to stop that project. And that was the first thing that really kicked off where our organization was doing. And that led all the way to doing other projects. Like we have immediate needs in the city, like lead testing, for instance. There's tons of lead in, in, uh, in this area. So many of the kids in our area are testing disproportionately high for lead contamination. Okay. And unlike a lot of other areas in the world, the United States didn't stop using lead in its housing for painting houses until 1976. Oh my goodness. Uh, in Germany, I believe they stopped in the early 1900s. <laughs> so this will give you a good idea of how far behind we are even with stuff like that. So we did all, all the way to stuff like that, you know, and that goes to my point about wanting to provide immediate services. I think that left-wing groups, and that's a lesson I think left-wing groups in the United States could take away from, say, something like the Black Panthers. You know, the Black Panthers weren't just, you know, militant radicals out on the streets all the time. They were also providing after-school programs. They were providing breakfast programs. And that was the way that they actually got into different communities. You know, that was the way that they were able to reach out to a lot of people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have been attracted to their politics. So and Vince, I think, you know, so Vince yeah. by, um, by attacking uh, reality where people really are and what they really need, uh, that's that's local. Does that mean that you then uh, try to uh, connect to other local groups of that sort? Is that is that, or do you do you see um, change happening purely by? Uh, sort of almost proselytizing at a local level? No, I mean, there's absolutely a need for regional coalitions, nationwide coalitions. I mean, as you know, I'm an internationalist, so yeah. I think there's a need for international coalitions. I think, I think the thing that I've seen, though, Annie, is that I see a lot of groups, and you might have noticed this as well, but there's a lot of groups who try and form coalitions when, for lack of a better term, they don't really have their crap together yeah. At the local level. Yeah, yeah. So you get these folks who get together and they're like, okay, we're going to create this large coalition. And it's like, okay, this is great. What do your groups represent? And they're like, oh, well, my group represents five people. You know, my group represents two people. It's like, yeah. okay, you know. If Who's you're your not constituency? Coming, who, who, who are the yeah, real people involved? People with an organized constituency and a base of power then I think it's really hard to create these kinds of coalitions and have them be really, truly effective. Mm. I, I know. I noticed that uh, your group has been doing things like uh, uh, evenings, um, musical evenings, and poetry evenings, and things like that. Like the impo yes. importance of uh, art in uh, uh, supporting and developing uh, people. Yes. Well, the importance of culture. Mm. I mean, the importance of of literature of poetry of music of film of bringing people together in a setting that's not a meeting that's not a rally that's not a direct action i've noticed that the best way to get to know people and the best way to build trust is to spend time in a social setting and i think beyond just say having drinks with each other i think sharing 
in culture is really important. And one of the things that we do have in the United States is a very, very wide-ranging uh, set of cultures and, and cultures that have mixed and, and all the way through film and art and music and all of the rest. And I think that's really something that left-wing groups should focus more on. And I think it's something that we can learn from the 1960s generation, to yeah. be honest. Mm. Well, you see, uh, from the outside, uh, people forget, I think, although, uh, I mean, America's a big place. So the stuff that we're getting uh, is uh, really just as it affects the power elites, not what's happening to people on the ground. Right. Is it, yeah, and what, I mean, really, food on the table, uh, I mean, like you say, you've had this incredible weather event. What happens to people who, do you have homeless people in Michigan City? We have a lot of homeless people in Michigan City, and we're also one of the few cities in northwest Indiana who provide services for homeless people. So fortunately, because of uh, organizations like uh, Keys to Hope, whose building is located directly across from our political uh, cultural center, they provide services for the homeless from 6 to 6, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then at 6 p.m., different soup kitchens and churches open their doors for people to sleep. We open our doors during the day from 9 to 5, and anyone who's cold or needs a place to come. I mean, negative 15 degrees is cold. Yeah. Um, so there's plenty of people who stop by, have a cup of coffee, hang out for a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it, 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 those kind of issues, I think, you know, I was talking to, you know, I'm sure you know who David Bradbury is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so just he made was, a film he, about being in America, right? He was, uh, he actually came and visited me. Yeah, cool. He's <laughs> he, a really nice person. He was just, he was just in the, in, uh, Chicago and I told him to hop on the train and he actually came out to our dump Trump event. Oh, cool. So he came out to our event with his daughter, and it was really a fun time, and it was amazing to see him. Um, very surreal. You know, the last time I imagined him was when we were running around in Canberra protesting yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, arms corporations. That's <laughs> so right. None, nonetheless, you know, he was asking, he was saying he had just been to a conference in Baltimore, and it was about U.S. bases. And I, obviously the idea is great. We need to rekindle some sort of anti-militarist, anti-empire, anti-imperialist, whatever you want to call it, anti-war movement. And he said, you know, there, it was a lot of just old white people and it was kind of a lot of the same faces and there wasn't a lot of energy. And he, then he came to our place for our event on Saturday. There's tons of young people, very diverse, live music, everybody there with good politics. In between the bands, there's different organizers and activists who are going up to the mic and talking about the work that they're doing in the region. Really amazing stuff. And I told him that I think if those those anti-war organizers would spend more time with the groups who have that young energy, that they could get those groups to take on those issues, but they can't expect those groups to just go to them. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. 
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've just been having a chat with uh, Vince Emmanuel who's in Michigan City in uh, Indiana in the United States getting a perspective on uh, local action there. And uh, this week was uh, a big week. On Friday, of course, was uh, Survival Day uh, and uh, a call for uh, Abolish Australia Day. But uh, another thing that happened uh, that uh, was very important was the send-off for one of our broadcasters, Giller, who uh, for 40 years has been associated with community radio and uh, a big lot of people turned up to the Aboriginal Advancement League down in Thornbury to do that send-off. Uh, one of the um, Giller was a great man. He was a pocket rocket of the uh, highest order. He was an Im- a incredible person, and uh, a, a man who made things happen and made things happen for other people. He was able to put a fire under individuals and allow them to uh, blossom. If I could mix a metaphor, and uh, it w- it's a really sad loss. But as uh, the people who spoke uh, about Giller. Um, at the event, uh, at the uh, funeral, uh, they were uh, deeply moved uh, and so appreciative of uh, having known such a, a great person that, uh, as uh, people said, you know, he now becomes one of the local legends, one of the legends. And uh, one of the people there that uh, credited him with having... Uh, put a fire under him, was Archie Roach. Uh, in fact, he said that it was actually Giller that made his career begin. And so let's uh, hear from Archie Roach. You and I have stayed in touch With the ones that made us strong do it and we don't know it's been done When life got tough sometimes we run You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we were just been listening to Archie Roach and uh, Vale Giller. He will be really missed. And on the line we've got Anna... Be- Bazookas. Bruzikas. sorry. Bruzikas. Bur- right. Oh, that's outrageous. I, I know how to say your name. I just suddenly realised I didn't. <laughs> uh, we're, we're talking to you once again about the Setting Sun Film Festival that's uh, coming up. Uh, and uh, you've got an important deadline, haven't you? Yeah, it's the 31st of January is when um, our entries end. Yeah. So not long, because today's the 27th. So, Tuesday? Yeah. Tuesday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and you're looking for shorts and features for what is? Yeah, we we've been mm-hmm. we've introduced a feature section this year. So we've put a call out for a um, a film made in Australia, um, well funded in Australia. You know, fifty one percent Australian funding to hopefully premiere at the festival. And we've had a couple of um, entries. We've had a few films being entered in that we're probably going to work through. So and, it's um, been a number. Yeah, so I mean, uh, the uh, 
Setting Sun Film Festival is actually a relatively new festival that highlights uh, films from the west of, uh, in Footscray, that sort of area, the west of Melbourne. Uh, but it's yeah. been growing and growing and growing. It's obviously got a huge and uh, supportive community behind it. Uh, yes, it does. Um, well, I think it started off just being like, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, mainly Western suburbs. But in the, you know, we we're coming up to our fifth year, but it's grown and we get entries from everywhere. We get entries from, you know, around Victoria and other states and we get some from inter- some international interest as well. So last year I think we had 90 um, films entered and... Um, it's too early to say yet, but we've had you know a hell of a lot into the again this year, and they come from everywhere. So yeah, it's good. It's growing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, give us a, a vibe for what uh, you're expecting to happen this year. I know I know you're calling for more entries, and you know the deadline's uh, January the thirty first. But you must be getting a sense of the shape of it. Um, well, we're hoping to be able to show a feature. And uh, what we did last year, and we'll probably do it um, again this year, is we announced our winners before the opening night um, and we played the finalists on the opening night. So that's always a really good night. We have a party before, like just a small cocktail party before um, uh, on the opening night and all the filmmakers and sponsors come down and um, we have a champagne and food and then we watch all the films and give everyone their awards. And then we just go into, um, you know, every day we have um, a program. So Saturday is usually the day we play the um, the Rouge, which is the all women, all female filmmakers program. So all everyone to, who enters that um, has either has um, a female director, screenwriter, or producer. And we actually have a prize for that. It's a thousand dollar prize, which is donated by Sue Maslin, who's the patron of WIFT. Um, the women in film and television. Yeah. And then usually the su- Sunday morning we have the um, secondary school kids program that's sponsored by Victoria University, who are the festival partner. And we play, you know, um, last year we played about two hours of films made by secondary school kids and then we um, give the top ten filmmakers an award at the end of that. Um, and then, you know, we do some photos and stuff. And so this year we've got to add in an extra day, which is the Monday. And probably on the Monday we'll try and show we're going to put a picture in there somewhere. So, so we, we've sold out every session. Um, so, yeah, they're good. Yeah, so, so the, good the, ama- yeah. the amount of... Uh, that's an interesting thing that uh, a lot of secondary school kids are making films. What, what's ha- uh, what sort of things do they make films about? Um, all sorts of, you know, stuff, the same as adults, really. They're uh, documentaries. So a lot of schools offer media. So a lot of kids um, make films from about year nine, year ten onwards when they start doing media. Um, then, you obviously, there's kids that do media, um, you know, focusing on, you know, film for their VCE. And so they'll often enter their film, their VCE film. And they make, you know, animations, dramas, documentaries, comedies, black and white, um, silent films, um, an, an astonishing range of films and really the standard of um, films by the secondary school kids is really, really good. I think we live in a day where filmmaking is a lot easier and, and kids are really quite film literate. They've got their phones and their, um, you know, their little cameras and, and they 
make films very easily these days, very quickly. It's nothing like in the old days where you need, you're encumbered by needing a lot of equipment. Uh, Yeah, yeah. They they do really well. So that's really impressive because uh, Setting Sun obviously gives a place for them to actually show what they do and that's a really important element of what Setting Sun's about, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, we get they... um, well, yes, yeah, so we have a, a program that nurtures them and showcases them, and that's quite popular, and that's grown from last year. So we've always had um, kids entering, the secondary school kids entering, and sometimes primary school. But I think with the um, support of Victoria University offering this uh, masterclass, the program's um, grown and, and lots more kids are entering their films and a lot more schools are entering uh, films. This is a so real this, sort, sort of grassroots uh, from, from the ground up kind of strengthening of the festival, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So I guess because it's still quite a Victorian festival. I mean, we get it, films from everywhere, but it's still quite a Melbourne, you know, festival. Um, you know, I can think of other ones a lot bigger and a lot, it's probably a lot harder for people to get a screening. So I think we do really well. We get great films. Um and we get a lot of them, you know, compared to some other film festivals that I'm aware of in Melbourne. So, yeah, we do well. Yeah, so how do you choose the films? Because if you're getting quite a well, few... Well, they're long-listed. They're long-listed. So, um, yeah, we, we have a certain amount of time at the Sun Theatre, like for our program. So we aim for, like, 90-minute programs. And then we... we um, we do like one a day and then we just sort of, um, we, we look to, you know, they, obviously they compete with each other, um, but we strive to show as many films as we can. So I think last year we showed about 60. Well, that's so, pretty impressive. And it, it was a very tough field because a lot of the filmmakers that enter are experienced filmmakers. They've won awards in other festivals, um, in other countries around Australia. They've been making films for years. So... It's, yeah, it's competitive. It's it's certainly very competitive, but we do strive to show as many as we can. Um, certainly the women's program, we show as many as we can. We get up to about two hours, which is a hell of a lot of short films to sit through. Um, and same with the kids. So we do. We do try and give as many people as we can a, um, a shot of being seen on the big screen. So when you're talking about uh, diversifying into features, what does that mean for the programming for you guys? Well, what we're hoping is to just show uh, a film that's at least 60 minutes long that's been um, independently made and produced in Melbourne um, and then having a Q&A with the filmmakers. And um, we will probably give it a, you know, an, another session of its own. So we're looking at maybe the Monday, putting a feature in. Um, but we'll work it all out once all the films are in and we know how many films we've got and um, where we can slot everything. So who are the? But I pa- guess it means that we're giving. Well, the, sorry. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say. So a lot of people out there making um, features off their own bat because it's so much easier in this day and age to, you know, pick up a digital camera and go and film and edit on a computer, and um, they haven't got an opportunity to show their film. It's um, expensive to hire a theatre. Um, it's not easy to get a distribution deal. So. There's a lot. There's films. People out there making features, you know, motivated, uh, creative people. So I guess 
um, festivals like the Setting Sun give those people an opportunity to maybe get screened where they may struggle in a much bigger international-focused festival. I mean, it's a tough gig uh, being people who have to actually decide on the program. So do you have a, a core group of people who do this work? I um, I work out the program. So there's a core group of there. There's about um, half a dozen judges and they pick the winners and sh- do the shortlist. Um, but the actual programs for like what's on, you know, which day and all that, I work that out. Yeah. Okay, so you you based be... on based on what films we make it through, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that process of uh, working out the shortlist and doing the um, uh, winners winners list. Uh, do you have uh, what sort of people? Or do you do you, uh, do you know who the you know who the judges are now? Do you? Or... Yeah, yeah. So um, they're usually so a lot of um, a few of our um, sponsors will be involved. So we have about half a dozen judges and they're people who work in the industry or people who have film knowledge, have studied. Um, we've got some producers. Um, last year we had some people from another festival who are also filmmakers judging. So we had about six or seven judges last year and this year we'll have the same. So there'll be representatives from Victoria University, um, Creativa Videos who sponsor the animation they'll have an opportunity to be involved in, um, you know, judging the animations. Um, Sue Maslin will pick the winner for the Rouge program, so she'll watch the entire program and, and um, you know, pick the, pick the winner. Uh, so there's, like, a, you know, different people. There's some media teachers. Um, and, some, and some of those people judge a couple, you know, they come back. Um, so we lose some, we gain some. They all enjoy doing it, yeah. So people, there's a there's a core group of people. So last year we had, yeah, we had a, um, a, a producer, we had Sue Maslin, we had some teachers, and we had some other filmmakers. Oh, fantastic! And, um, film festival directors. So it's it's a, an experienced group of judges. Yeah. So so the actual festival is on April the twenty sixth to the thirtieth. Uh, yeah. So there's still a bit of time to go, but the, as uh, we said, this is an important deadline. They're closing uh, time for uh, getting a short Tuesday. or a feature in this Tuesday. So uh, uh, give us the details for people who may be listening and who want to get something in. Okay, well, you just have to go to the website, um, the Setting Sun Film Festival website, and just go to submit, submit film section. And just follow the process there. So um, you have to, yeah, just so you can either enter through the website or you can enter through Film Freeway. There's a little button on the on the submit film section. So some people just to make it easy for filmmakers. Um, so a lot of people enter their details into Film Freeway, and you know prefer to just enter films that way. It's easier than filling out lots of different applications. So yeah, that's all you have to do. It's very easy. If there's any issues at all. Um, there's a link there for people to contact the office. So I've been trying to respond to emails as they come in um, day and night um, because of the closing deadline and, um, you know, and helping people if they're having any issues. So some, some people we just, just send the entry form out to them manually. Oh, you're fantastic. It's pretty straightforward. Good on you, Anna. So are you. So are you, (laughs) Anna. Thank you you for your support over the years. You've changed time slots. 
Oh, no, no, no. This is just another program. I know, I mean, uh, listeners might know that I do an Australian-focused uh, film show on Thursday yes. at 11 a.m. And uh, it's such an That's important... That's what I'm all used to. Yeah, well, no, but you see, it was such an important deadline that um, I thought that listeners should know that Setting Sun uh, on this Saturday morning show that I do, that uh, the Setting Sun is a really important... Uh, uh, development in um, local filmmaking, and uh, and I just thought well, it was you. really important for people to to hear and to put in their calendars that April twenty sixth to the thirtieth is. It's great, like yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's great. We like they're really good films. We get lots of really great films, and um, we're oh. you know we're really lucky. And the venue. Uh, setting uh, the, it's the Sun Theatre. The Sun Theatre is just a, a fabulous Art Deco. Uh, experience. Yeah. So we, I should just say that we get a lot of support from the Maribyrnong City Council as well and Kindred Studio. So they're all offering, um, um, we get prizes from um, on offer for people. So there's cash, there's um, about $10,000 worth of prizes. So the winner of the feature gets a, a free screening um, and some passes at the Sun Theatre, but we've also got $1,000 for the best short film, um, um, use of the Loop Project Space and Bar to host their own event. Um, of their work or a feature and then we've also got film passes we've got um, overnight stays at Captain's Retreat which include breakfast um, something is donating La Scala Cinema for people to do their own screening we've got artwork by Baby Gorilla uh, Madman and um, E1 Entertainment of um, giving DVD packs Creative Videos is giving studio time Kindred Studios is giving free studio time um, so there's some really good passes there, uh, prizes there. Yeah, so uh, it's all happening out west. Out uh, yes. <laughs> Talk to you soon. West is best. Yeah, west is best. Thanks west for talking to us. Hashtag. Thank you. See you later. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And you're Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And we've got Chris Smith on the line. Chris is a spokesperson for uh, Victorian National Parks Association. G'day. How are you, Chris? Good, thanks, uh, Annie. How are things with you? Oh, okay. And uh, I survived the Survival Day demonstrations that were happening big time in Melbourne yesterday. But we're talking about... Uh, uh, what's going on down on the uh, coastline between Port Ferry and Warrnambool, which is about uh, uh, the coast, uh, Belfast Coastal Reserve and a new report that's uh, been put out by the government requiring people to comment uh, around the use of the, uh, the sands between that area for uh, racehorse training. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, upset about uh, what's being proposed. Can you talk to that? Yeah, sure. Uh, the Belfast Coastal Reserve, as you said, is between Port Ferry and Warrnambool. It's a, 
It's a very important part of the coast. It's, it's one of the most important breeding areas for the tiny little hooded plovers. Now, a lot of people might think that plovers are those birds that swoop them all the time when <laughs> they go down the footy ground, but uh, they're now called masked lapwings for some unknown reason, and these little guys down the beach used to be called dotterels, but they're now called plovers. And they're very small, and they nest on the beach, which is a, probably a, a bad evolutionary kind of trait, deciding to nest on a beach when uh, you've got the tides, you've got lots of exposure to the elements, uh, but they nest there between roughly August and March and they usually try to get a few eggs in and a few chicks, but unfortunately with uh, commercial racehorse training and dogs and other sorts of problems down there, it's a really it's a big struggle for them. So there's only about 50 to 60 birds down there and uh, last year one of the beaches had about 11 chicks rear, but only one survived. And, oh, goodness. Uh, what happens is the horses are running up and down the beach. They create uh, huge holes in the sand. The little chicks fall into them. They can't get out of them, and they've got to try and get down to the water's edge to feed. But also the horses can go through the protective fencing. They can crush eggs. They just disturb the sand and uh, also cause some problems at the base of the sand dune uh, where they're galloping along uh, destabilises the sand dune. But it's not just the, the hooded plovers and the other birds that use the air. It's also a very important area for recreation. So for anglers, surfers, beach walkers, bird watchers. And there's a lot of people camp down that way as well. And uh, so the family outing down the beach is really under threat because of the way that the government has opened up our beaches to racehorse training. It's a bizarre notion. I was actually brought up down there and uh, I noticed that uh, a, a local politician was saying that uh, when he went down to Levy's Point, there was nobody there. So therefore, 200 horses, up to 200 horses could use that space. That seems like a good compromise position, he was saying. Well, it's a good argument for opening up any area if there's no one there to just develop it. And that's really not the purpose of coastal reserves or national parks and so on. You want to actually protect these areas. And I think it's a great thing that there's not very many people down there, but he probably went down at the wrong time. And he also actually has a son who's a racehorse trainer. So there's, there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. Um, and I think one of the, the big problems is that Parks Victoria has to manage this area. I don't think Parks Victoria is particularly happy with the, the arrangement, but uh, reports are that the, the draft management plan, which you referred to, went to the Premier's office, went to the Racing Minister's office, who happens to also be the Attorney-General, and uh, they weren't happy with it, and they asked uh, for more racehorse training beaches. So what's happened is um, last year the government gave a licence to the Warrnambool Racing Club to allow the training of horses along the beach. They allowed it in two places, and that was a place called Golfies, which is between Killarney and Port Ferry, and at Rutledge's Cutting, which is in between Killarney and Warrnambool. And they had about two kilometres of beaches available to them, under this new plan, they'll have five kilometres of beaches plus 750 metres of sand dunes, which sand dunes are the last place you want to put horses. They oh, yeah. cause huge instability in the sand dunes, and that actually has a big impact on cultural heritage sites. The area is a very important area for traditional owners, the, the Gundich Mar and the Eastern Mar. And so there's some real, real problems that this government just doesn't seem to get. And now we've been saying this is going to be a very an awful precedent for, for coastal management right along Victoria. And we're now seeing there's an ad for uh, a beachfront property just uh, east of, sorry, west of um, Port Ferry, which uh, they're now saying, oh, you've got beachfront access and you'll be able to train your racehorse there. And there's also rumours that there are other beaches along that way which are being used by commercial racehorses. We've also got problems down at Balnaring on the uh, oh my Morning goodness. Peninsula. And Coronet Bay has also been a problem, and it's just beginning to expand. It's not just racehorses. It, it, years ago, we, 
the community was upset that sand dunes were being used for, for dune buggies and so on. Yeah. They took them out of those areas. Or off, off bikes, off, off-road bikes and so on. Lots of other issues we've been trying to deal with over the last 10, 20, 30 years, trying to improve the management of our coast. This is actually taking us back to the 1950s. And it's just a relic of what used to be coastal management in inappropriate use. And taxpayers are really footing the bill. I mean, when, when the licences were being drawn up for the Warrnambool Racing Club, they were really uh, trying to avoid paying anything, to, basically to, to, have, to have people monitoring the racehorses, because if you've got a licence, you've got to make sure you, you don't breach it. And so they were reluctant to actually pay stewards to go down and observe. And that's with for two places. Now there's going to be five areas, and so they're going to be reluctant. They're going to expect the government and Parks Victoria to foot the bill. They've had to foot the bill uh, for new car parking arrangements at uh, Golfies Beach near Port Ferry. And there's now in the plan, there's more proposals for new infrastructure. And so it's also going to start urbanising this wonderful area, which is a very... It's not oh, remote, it's but it's, certainly, it's a place where you can actually get away from things. And actually, they say that in the management way, this is a great place for people to get away from the urban areas of Warrnambool. And uh, they're just going to turn it into something something like that. So it's a real concern. Uh, we, uh, we're going to continue arguing the case against this. There is a period of uh, consultation for the management plan. We'll be encouraging people to get submissions in. But unfortunately, the, the consultation process so far it's been particularly biased towards the, the racing industry and unfortunately the racing industry has deep pockets although they tend to sort of cry poor at certain times although they keep saying it's such an important industry to the region but most people who work in the southwest are either in health, welfare, tourism, education. Uh, the racing industry doesn't, uh, doesn't really generate that much of a, uh, an income in terms of percentage terms. It's still an important sector but they could very easily do all this training on purpose-built facilities off the reserve around the Warrnambool Racing Club. They've just uh, upgraded a sand training track thanks to taxpayer funding. They've actually just installed a training pool thanks to taxpayer funding. And they all they need to do is put in a, an uphill training track and uh, there's no reason, there's never been a good reason why they'd be on the beaches. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because there's a real dovetailing of... Uh, 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 You'd almost say crooked dealing. I mean, when you've got uh, the race club, uh, the Warrnambool Racing Club, actually doing the licensing, uh, when I mean, there's uh, the uh, government uh, first says that uh, even though people weren't happy with it, that uh, the number of race horses would be about 68, and then they put out this new uh, uh, so-called plan that now raises the to 200 horses. I mean, it's quite clear that uh, there is an absolute bias towards using public spaces for commercial interests. Well, when they put out the licensing system in the middle of last year, they said, this is fantastic. There used to be about 250 horses in the Belfast Coastal Reserve. Now we're going to reduce it to 65. Well, this, uh, this plan actually takes it back to yeah. 250 horses. And that's just outrageous. It's uh, an appalling um, way to look after what is a very important piece of the coast, not just from a, a natural history point of view, but from a cultural history point of view, from social history and recreational activities. And uh, and the community feels they've been uh, ignored in the whole consultation process. There's been a, a lot of community reaction, hasn't there? Yes, and as, as there is a, a very strong uh, active group called the Belfast Coastal Reserve Action Group, and they've been doing a wonderful job uh, highlighting the issues, educating the local community. 
And I think gradually, uh, with this plan coming out, I, I see references to anglers getting very upset, surfers are getting very upset, because they're, they're coming down to, to go fishing or to go surfing, park their car in the car, or they can't get it in because of all the horse floats. And so that's a real concern that we're actually turning this uh, reserve into a commercial operation. It's privatising the management by giving the management to the Warrnambool Racing Club. And that's really something which we don't want to see along the Victorian coast where we have private interests uh, determining what's actually going to happen on a particular patch of beach. And I'm sure a lot of people will be very concerned when they're going down at the moment during summer on their holiday beaches. And I'm sure there's a lot of people down at Warrnambool who are really concerned about the numbers of horses which are appearing on their beaches. And that's the sort of comments that they've been getting on the, um, the local newspaper's website, a lot of concern about it. Uh, you've touched on something there that I was going to ask you about. Uh, for locals, this is a crime. Uh, why should other people be concerned about it? You know, we're on a Melbourne-centred radio station. Yeah. Uh, well, but, it's, it's, coming, yeah. it's coming to a beach near you. Yeah. Uh, this is this is the sort of uh, precedence being set up there, and there's no reason why uh, there'll be other beaches uh, along the coast which could also not just horse racing could be other inappropriate uses being developed. The government doesn't seem to really be all that concerned about how inappropriate uses are along the coast. They're just basically, uh, in this case, they're pandering to the racing industry, or there may be another industry come up uh, next year who would also like to open up some beaches for their own private use. There's a deadline. March is the deadline for responses to this uh, action plan. Uh, yes. w- what would you advise people to do? Well, the best thing would probably be to go onto the Parks Victoria website. Just Google in Belfast Coastal Reserve Management Plan. That'll come up with the Parks Victoria website. There is a, I think they've got an online questionnaire. You can also send in via email uh, with an attachment uh, if you want to make a longer submission. But the important thing is that this is—it's uh, a privatisation. It's losing your access, people's access to the beaches. It's basically causing a lot of damage, but from a natural point of view, from a cultural point of view, from a recreational point of view. And it, you may not holiday down there at the moment. You may not have visited Belfast Coastal Reserve, but it's a very important place. And. This is something which could also come to the beaches that you love and like to go and visit. Thanks, Chris, for talking to us this morning. Thanks so much, Annie.
We're on Solidarity Breakfast 3CR with Annie and on the line we've got Humphrey McQueen. G'day Humphrey. Good day, Annie. Here we are again. Yes, live. Girding up for the battle ahead. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so well, the battle's already started, hasn't it? From <laughs> yes. And, and you had a you had a big turnout yesterday in Melbourne. Oh yes, it was a ripper, and it was yeah. extraordinary how uh, underplayed it was on the mainstream media. I noticed that. In fact, we had about seven hundred people here, um, which is pretty good too. It's pretty good for Canberra, particularly it's a long weekend and everyone goes down the coast. Exactly. Um, and this, Anyway, but no, anyway, so all of that, all of that was there and, um, you know, I mean, clearly this question has only, only just begun to be opened up. Um, and what we want to do this morning is to say, well, there are many other things about this that need to be opened up as well. Uh, and what I'd like to do, you know, there's no point in telling 3CR, you know, people out there in our audience about the, the the relationship between the British Empire and the indigenous populations of Australia. I mean, that's why there were 25,000 people or more out marching yesterday. We don't have to tell you that. What I'd like to do is to take on some of the other aspects that were going on at the time to put it into that larger context um, of what the convicts were doing, how they were treated, what the British Empire was up to around the world at that stage, and then some of the things that then flowed on from that, depending on on, on how much further time we've got. Okay. Now, um, in <laughs> a tiny bit of pedantry, in 1984, Geoffrey Blaney said the date shouldn't be the 26th of January, it should be the 18th of January, which is when the fleet got to Botany Bay. But nobody seems to pay any attention to that kind of piece of you know, fundamental information anymore. Everyone settled on January the 26th as the big day. OK, what were the British trying to do here? I don't think the word invasion is appropriate for what they thought they were about. When they'd sent the expedition out, what they were doing was they were not invading Australia. They were on their way to China and the big tea trade. Now, why were they coming around this way? Well, their old allies who controlled the Indonesian peninsula, which is really, you know, there's an enormous corporation out of, out of Holland called uh, the East India, India Company. Company yeah. <laughs> I mean, they controlled all those waterways. And the English and the Dutch for once had fallen out. Uh, and so the English said, well, we can't get through there anymore. But, but because of the other East India Company, the one the Brits had, which was the Indian East India Company, who, were, who had a total trade monopoly over, as far as England was concerned, over all this area, we've still got to get to China and the tea trade. So, so what they decide to do is to come round the, you know, right round the, to Australia to set up a trading post there. Uh, on, on their way to China. The other thing they're doing... So that's what Australia is, a trading post? Yeah. Well, and also it was a way of launching out and getting two other absolutely essential things for the British Navy. Now, this takes us back all the way to Europe and the northern part of Europe because until now the Brits had been able to get quite a lot of the naval spars they needed and quite a bit of the flax that was coming out of... The all of that area um, 
which we would now describe as being around the Baltic. Now, for a whole reasons we won't go into now, the supply of the of 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 all of the timbers they needed and of the flax uh, was either running out because they chopped it all down in the case of the timber, or there were trading difficulties and there were disputes up there between you know one another. So it wasn't entirely secure to supply, and yet the power of the Royal Navy was the power of the British Empire, uh, and the Empire needed to be able to trade everywhere around the world and to defeat everybody else. And that's what it had been able to do all through the, um, you know, the previous hundred years. Gave them the edge. Yeah, and, you know, and I mean, this, was, this, this had been... Go- all through the 18th century, there'd been a world war going on. Um, you know, it, it would break out here or there or somewhere else. Um, but there was a world war basically going on between the English and the French, and sometimes someone would, you know, the, you know, someone would join one side and swap sides and things. And anyway, so that's that's what they were after, and they were on their way as as Cook had reported to them and Joseph Banks that there was a lot of flax in New Zealand and there was a lot of timber on Norfolk Island. And so the plan was that, yes, there would be a penal a sort of trading post here on the way to China, and for good measure, they'd be able to pick up the flax and, and some of the timber. Now, uh, as it turned out, uh, for a whole range of other reasons, the, uh, you know, the, the kind of trading bits certainly proceeded, but then they were able to conquer the Dutch again and they were able to get access through there. Now, the other question is that everybody learns in their school books, unfortunately, still, that there was an overflow of the British prisons. There were all these, you know, unfortunate convicts who were, who were, being, who were being kept in these terrible things called the hulks and you had to, in order to relieve the overcrowding, you know, you can almost... Because they were doing a good... Di- you know, they off. were being a good, a good guys by doing this. But, what, them out. Now, but, you, this you're great, but you're great. You, you describe them as actually, this is slave labour. They were provided slave, slave labour. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental point that every Marxist should understand about this is that human labour is the one productive resource that can add more value than goes into its own reproduction. No one is going to throw it away. They're not as mad as that. Now, people say, oh, they couldn't send them to, um, you know, off to the American colonies anymore. Um, therefore, they had to send them somewhere else. Completely wrong. They weren't sending them there. Um, they were they, selling they were, them there. They were selling them there. Yeah. And, and not sending them there, not selling them there anymore, was a way of punishing the people who, who had actually revolted against them. Yeah. Um, and what were they doing on the Thames anyway? Well, two things. All of the men convicts were being used on naval works. That's right, down at Greenwich. They were slave gangs. Yeah, yeah, I saw a whole thing about it. They're the ones who built that whole uh, interface from the sea to the land yeah, down yeah. there, yeah. And what were the women convicts doing? Spinning and weaving. Yeah. Because what does the Navy need? Uniforms and sails. You know, I mean, as I say, any labour, anyone who has an understanding of the nature of exploitation knows that you don't throw human labour away. You try and use it for something. And, and that's what they were doing out here. Uh, and once we get here, you know, what did happen shortly after the 26th of January is there was not much food and a couple of convicts stole a bit of food, so they got flogged. 
within a couple of weeks, the, the first of the executions of the convicts took place. Mm. You know, so what we get right from the start is this big picture of the empire and the class struggle. And indeed, on the 26th, what happens is they begin to bring the stuff ashore. Governor Philip has a prefabricated house and the convicts have to put that up for him. Where do the convicts stay? Well, when it rains, they have to take shelter under the cabbage tree palms. Mm. So what we've got is the division between the rich and the powerful on the one side and the poor and the oppressed and the exploited and the flogged on the other side. And so that the tradition that is established within the European invaders, what a friend of mine calls the unsettlers, these are... <laughs> it's a great term. It's a great phrase, isn't it? You keep saying the unsettlers did this and the unsettlers did that. Um, that, that it is the class struggle that is right there from the very start. And indeed, let's leap ahead 20 years to the 26th of January, 1808. It's the date of the Rum Rebellion. The propertied classes, always law-abiding, as we know, overthrow the legitimate government. Fantastic. Their own government. I mean, you know... This the is we celebrate on the January the 26th. Well, this is something that should be, if in a sense, celebrated and pushed back in their faces and say, this is what you will do to hang on to your property. It's what you've always done and it's what you always will do. And it happened on the 20th anniversary that you want to make this day in which we all come together. Uh, but you don't want to be reminded of what actually happened, do you? Uh, so that's something else that you know that has to be made part of the public debate ar ar um, ar around the whole story. If we leap ahead um, to uh, to 1838, well, it's the year of the Mile Creek Massacre. Oh, God! It doesn't happen till June. Uh, and what's intriguing about that um, is that. Because of the particular person who was then effectively the Attorney General, it's the first time that the unsettlers are brought to trial. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the terrible thing happens, but it's also this occasion in which some of the unsettlers use their authority to say, no, you can't do this, so that the battle is drawn along those lines as well. And what happens, of course, I mean, 38 from the other side of the frontier, that's, for the next seven years, the frontier wars really get underway. And I've, I mean, I've been saying this for a long time, but I think there's an, a lopsided emphasis on all of the massacres and almost no attention paid to the fact that the local population were fighting back, that they just weren't sitting there like koalas up trees. That's right. mm. They were defending, you know, as Henry Reynolds has also said about it, this is the real war for Australia. That's right. And it was waged by the people on the other side of this, but what by then has certainly become an invasion. You know, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> no doubt about what happens afterwards. Um, you know, uh, but so, you know, so we've got to remember that when we think of all, all um, all of the sites in which terrible things happened, on the other side of the frontier, these people are saying, 
we're going to hold on to our territory. And that battle went on, really, in a sense, um, in an armed way, um, into, well, I mean, in one sense, you could say it goes on until, until we set out to go to war with Japan. Until then, there were whole parts of along the northern coastline of Australia yeah, in right. which the Europeans simply said, it's too hard. We just leave it the way it is. You know, whole part of Arnhem Land. Hold on. Uh, I'll just remind listeners, they're uh, listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're having a yarn with uh, Humphrey McQueen. Go on, Humphrey. Well, anyway, so we've always got to remember that. That, but, you know, that, 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 that there was a war going, I mean, you know, I mean, whether you want to use the war, I mean, you know, you know these sort of technical terms, you can argue about that as well. But certainly, there was endlessly inventive resistance. I mean, they were not so stupid as to fling themselves into the, you know, in, 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 into the, into the firing line of the redcoats. That what they would do, they smartly worked out that the enemy was the invading army of sheep. Yep. If you get rid of the sheep, then you, then you got rid of the unsettler. And so they would set fire to the, to the paddocks where the sheep were and burn them. They would drive them over cliffs. Um, you know, so if, you know, on the old and basically excellent rule, you'd perform maximum harm to your class enemy, and, you know, the invaders, the unsettlers, and you try and keep harm to yourself down to the smallest amount possible. And that's what they were trying to do. Where, however, they were in a much better position, as the Kalkadoons were, way up which we would now say up in the Gulf Country, there, you know, 400, you know, troops on the, the other side of the frontier could be assembled. And they conducted a different kind of warfare up there. So, I mean, all of those things are happening. And, you know, and it's important to, to recall that they weren't just sitting there waiting for someone to come along and slaughter them. They were fighting back as best they could. And with all the invention um, and all the creativity um, that they could bring together. Now, let's leap up to to 100 years of the arrival of the unsettlers. And what do you do? You've now got an embarrassing situation. What do you do about the convicts? Oh, pretend uh, that they weren't there. You pretend they're not there. Yeah. You have this wonderful situation. Uh, the bloody old bulletin, of course. Um, you know, they weren't going to let the bourgeoisie forget <laughs> to how the place had started. And Henry Parks, as Premier of New South Wales, decides he wants to call Australia. Uh, wants to call New South Wales Australia. Take over the word for that. You know, just for his colony. Oh, and just, and something you pointed out, Australia is actually the Latin word for South, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's where it comes um, from. Yeah. Um, and then we get this nice bit that the Victorians say, oh, no, you shouldn't call New South Wales, you know, t- take the whole word Australia just for New South Wales. What you really should call New South Wales is Convictoria. <laughs> so that... So, on the battle went around there, and it happens again in 1938. 
the 150th anniversary. Um, by now, people, well, long before then, a lot of these people who have become members of the upper classes had had a shadow in their distant past, and they're trying to make out that there are no convict ancestors and all of that. And wonderful um, book comes out called Pioneers on Parade, a wonderful, well, I'm going to say wonderful, it's a, it's a marvellous joke against the bourgeoisie. Um, it could have been about the Wentworths, of course, who had some of this containted blood, as it was considered to be, because in those days, well, you still find people who think that, that, that you could Criminality is, is, is catchy. And, and you pass it on through the blood. That's right, the blood. You know? The blood, the Europeans the are really blood. into the blood. Yes. Oh, the blood, yes. Well, anyway, um, so all of that comes up in around eight, uh, 1938. But, of course, as we know, from the 1920s onwards, the Aborigines are getting organised with the Aboriginal Advancement League, and they declare the 26th of January in 18, 1938 to be, that's what they say is, that's Invasion Day. That's and, right. That day yeah, of so morning. So the word comes in way back then. And the use of the word, you know, to say, oh, it's this political correctness. They're talking about, it's only, it's only this dreadful thing called an invasion. But they didn't, well, they, they didn't invent it, did they? Other, by no means. No, the bourgeois no. historians, long before, were talking about, because it was, they just said, this was an invasion. If you just look at, at Sir Keith Hancock's 1930 history, which is simply, was simply called just the one word Australia, uh, and that was a textbook for the next 30 years. Yeah, yeah, very strange, a very, very famous book. Yeah, um, he just has a chapter heading called Invasion. Yeah, no matter that's what, right. You know, but nobody got excited because they said, yeah, that's what happened. Um, so that's what's going on throughout the 1930s. Now, something else that we need to, to bring into this story when people talk about, oh, we need a day to bring everybody together. Well... I've pointed out some of the class divisions that we need to be reminded of, and there are plenty more. So that, for example, people say to me, well, if you don't want that day, what day would you like? And I'd say, well, how about eight-hour day? Hmm. And indeed, to be a bit naughty, why don't we have Australia Day on every Friday of the week, of every week? Have a 32-hour week? <laughs> and then we could say, yeah, Australia's the land of the long weekend which is where we were headed, you might remember, in the 60s and 70s, somehow or other. You know, we've gone from a 32-hour week to a 52-hour week, if you're lucky. Yeah, that's right, and underemployment. So, yeah, well, if, yeah. So, now, the other thing that's happening, where does this phrase Australia Day come from? From the Irish Catholics. Because after the death of Queen Victoria and we used to have the Queen's birthday, you know, her birthday is the public holiday. Then in 1903, after the genocide that the British Empire inflicted on the Boer women and children, uh, inventing concentration camps, killing at least 25,000 Boer women and children and about twelve to 15,000 of their African servants, to cover this up, they decide that the Queen's birthday, henceforth, will be called Empire Day. Well, the Irish at this time are beginning to openly rebel again, and by 1911, the Irish Catholics in Australia say, we will now celebrate something which we call Australia Day. 
So what Australia so Day... So Australia begins, Day was instead of Empire Day. It's right, yeah. So this, oh, fascinating. It, yeah, so in a sense that the class conflict built into the conflict between the Irish and the British Empire is how the, the, the notion of Australia Day gets in. Now, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an unofficial thing at this point. What happens in the early 1930s is that Jack Lang and the Labor government in New South Wales, who are locked in a battle not to pay all of the interest to the British bondholders, um, we're now in, you know, really in the terrible depths of the Depression. Um, and so in New South Wales, the Labor government there now declares what had previously been called Anniversary Day on the 26th of January, they now declined, you know, to, to decide that it will now be called, this will be Australia Day. But again, it's aimed at the British Empire. And slowly but surely, this notion of around New South Wales, because remember, the South Australians are very snooty about this because they didn't have convicts. And they've got Proclamation Day. The Tasmanians who did have convicts and don't want to be reminded of it at all or didn't, they have a thing called, and they celebrate the days in which um, Mr. Abel Tasman sailed past as, as, as their national day. But so the they call thing, it Regatta Day. They call it Regatta Day, which is what which it was is bizarre. called. Which, well, it, well, they used to have a regatta on that day. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. how it started in Sydney Harbour. The 26th of January, in the early years, before 1838, it was also known as, this was called the Regatta Day. Um, So all of this stuff, you know, that, oh, we've got these traditions and we've got to uphold them. It's a wonderful... uh, Well, it's interesting to me because as a kid, I don't... I mean, I must say that I do come from Irish Catholic stock. I don't remember Australia Day being very important at all. No, no. Um, you know, and you know, it became you know the Empire Day sort of lingered on, and then the Empire, you know, well, it sort of got killed off by the members of the Empire saying, "Thank you very much, we're going to bugger off now." So, <laughs> so that was the end of the Empire. So they moved it around, and eventually, with a lot of toing and froing, it became the Queen's birthday. Yeah. Again, which is where it started all the way back there. We, um, we have to tidy up because we've come I to know the end of the we program. Do. Yeah. I, I know we do, but what I'm all I'm saying is that the story is much much more complicated than than you know, people who are in favour and against really understand. There's a great deal more. I've sent you down some of it, and I know you're going to put it up on the site mm. for people. And and I want to add a great deal more to that. You know, in the very between now and this spotty time next history, year. very spotty concept. This idea of Australia Day and standing oh, behind some nice. standard mm. in in every way, indeed. Yeah. Okay, great start to the year. Yep. Great to hear from you. And we'll be back in a little while. Yeah, and that was Humphrey McQueen giving us a breakdown of the absurdity that is called Australia Day and uh, giving people an idea of the history that uh, White Australia actually is about. That's our first uh, program for the year uh, where we uh, uh, talked to Vince Emanuel from America. We uh, had a chat with Anna Bazookas from the Setting Sun Film Festival out west. We uh, went down the coast to talk about how uh, commercialisation with racehorse trainers along the uh, coastline in Victoria is a threat to uh, animals, environment, culture, recreation, 
a real problem and uh, coming to a beach near you. And uh, we followed that with Humphrey McQueen. We're going to go out with uh, a suggestion from uh, Humphrey. This is uh, Ellie Mills and her version of Waltzing Matilda. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.